0: Welcome to this edition of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wyan, Director of Communications with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month, which fits really well with our work, given that two of ASHA's programs, respectively, are the National HPV Resource Center and the National Cervical Cancer Coalition. So our focus today is going to be on treatment options for these cancers, and to help us out, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Mamta Singhvi a radiation oncologist, and a member of Asha's Board of Directors. Dr. Singhvi, thank you for spending some time with us today.
1: Hi, Fred. I am so excited to be here with you, and I appreciate you spending the time with me as well.
0: Well, we're so happy to have you. Um, So we'll just dive right into it. Uh, Would you talk a bit about treatment options for cervical and other gynecologic cancers?
1: Absolutely. So when we think of cancer treatment, the mainstays in this day and age remain the same as they have for many years. So that includes surgery, radiation, and systemic therapy in the form of either chemotherapy or immunotherapy. The choice of modality or the combination thereof depends on a few factors, including the type and location of cancer, the extent or stage of disease, and the overall health of the patient. This principle applies to the most common GYN cancers that we see in the United States as well, which would include cervical, ovarian, and endometrial cancer.
0: Okay. And thank you for defining those cancers. I I should have laid that out there as well. Uh, And when we talk about gynecologic cancers, we're also including broadly vulvar and vaginal as well. Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's not as commonly seen, um, but absolutely those are included as well.
0: Okay. So, when women are undergoing treatment for uh, these cancers, what kind of side effects would they commonly expect to experience?
1: The side effects are generally related to the type of therapy that's utilized. Surgery and radiation are what we consider to be local treatments. This means that the side effects will be limited to the area that's directly being treated. For instance, if we operate on the brain or radiate the brain, that means the stomach or the liver or the feet should not be impacted. Let's contrast that with chemotherapy or immunotherapy. Because these drugs are administered through the bloodstream, the entire body and all of its many systems are vulnerable to side effects. These side effects could include anything from nausea and vomiting to hair loss, tingling of the hands and feet, blood cell abnormalities, rashes, fatigue, so on and so forth. Now, side effects are further classified according to the time frame in which they arise. So there's acute, which means immediate, versus chronic, meaning long-term, and that usually happens well after treatment is complete. Acute effects of standard GYN treatments will involve the organs that are in the vicinity, such as the rectum, bladder, vagina, uterus, ovaries, and skin. These side effects could include anything from vaginal infection, increased urination, diarrhea, hemorrhoids, etc. Now, long-term side effects, um, which are very rare but extremely critical to review, um, include such things as treatment-induced menopause and all of the consequences that come with that, decreased libido, vaginal drying, vaginal narrowing, and a few more. If a woman wants to conceive, it is very important, therefore, to have an in-depth discussion about her options prior to us starting treatment. let say, for the most part, those are the side effects that we would, we, one should consider when undergoing treatment for any sort of gynecologic cancer.
0: So, so you're talking about the different treatment approaches, different modalities. There's the local, the uh, surgical and radiation, and then systemic, the immunotherapies like, like chemo. So um I it I mean is is it is it even does it even make sense to talk about it, is are the side effects typically more extreme with one approach versus uh uh the other or do you really just see an array of side effects with either one it's not so much that like one is you would expect more with say chemo than you would with radiation or or how would you parse that out
1: Um I, I think that the best way to generalize that sort of question is to make clear that it's not generalizable in every single patient. It's important to go over every potential side effect, which unfortunately serves the purpose of oftentimes frightening the patient, but we just can't predict as physicians who will react in what way. So that's one thing to keep in mind, is some people just coast through treatment, whereas other people really seem to have every side effect under the sun. Um, that being said, one thing I can generalize is that patients who have dual modalities thrown at them, say for cervical cancer you're getting chemotherapy and radiation, they tend to fare a bit worse because your immune system, your body's being sure. attacked um, on all fronts. So generally, the more modalities um, thrown at a patient, the worse they will do.
0: And do you tend to use, uh, say, dual modalities, more than one approach to treatment? once the cancer, I guess, is, is a bit more advanced and it's not local and you really have to think about maybe metastasis and stuff like that. Is that, is that fair to say?
1: Um, again, that's also not something that I can make a broad sweeping statement on. It's really just going to come back to the type of cancer, the stage, and the overall health of the patient. So, for instance, early stage, very early stage cervical cancer can be treated purely with surgery. Once you get a little bit further on radiation and chemotherapy is the modality of choice. But then once you really get further on, further advanced on your metastatic stage four disease, then all we really have to offer is chemotherapy. So it's, it's gonna, and you know, every single patient's different in terms of their baseline wellness, their baseline ability to handle these toxic treatments. So really, um, and as far as it comes to cancer, every treatment plan should be personalized to the patient in
0: question. Okay. You mentioned uh, side effects can be acute sort of over over the short term versus the longer term ones. So would you talk a little bit more about what kind of changes that might persist following treatment? And and I was interested to hear you mention mention low libido because that's something where asher has been doing a lot of work.
1: Sure, sure. So if sex becomes difficult, um, I think the key – in terms of sexuality, is to be as open and a communicative with your medical team as possible. Uh, the responsibility is very much a two-way street between patient and provider. In fact, in my humble opinion, it's very much incumbent upon the physician to broach this topic, since it is such an intimate um, conversation piece, and often taboo, depending on the culture and background of the patient. One key recommendation when it comes to Sexual activity is regular use of a vaginal dilator to maintain the size of the canal. Beyond that, though, there are plenty of resources available, everything from medications to counseling. So, again, it just comes back to having that channel of communication open between patient and provider.
0: So let me ask you, you mentioned that these can be hard conversations to have. You know, Anything to deal with SEX is not easy for us, right? And so, uh, and I suspect that applies not only to patients, but sometimes to the providers. So what can we do to maybe encourage providers to have these conversations more or maybe make it a little easier for them?
1: Now, that's a really wonderful question and something that I've thought about over the years as well, not only during my medical training and residency, but beyond is how do we normalize And I think that's where organizations such as ASHA, such as NCCC, the National Circle Cancer Coalition, your work is so um, critical in terms of not only changing the culture of our country, but also kind of the way the medical system operates. And in my estimation at all, in terms of of medical providers being able to talk about this comfortably, it has to start in medical school and training where we really um, hold you know, young physicians' hands and and teach them how to do this because it's not something that happens overnight. So that's, I think, the best way is a kind of a multi pronged approach to not only changing our culture but changing the way we teach uh, trainees.
0: That's a good point, and you remind me of an article I read. I think it was last year, and I can't—it it escapes me. So I apologize for that. But but the, the long and short of it was that in medical school curricula, we're really not spending a lot of time on sexual health. You know, it really gets short, short shrift compared to, to a, a number of other topics. So I think you're exactly right. there. starting early. You know, in training is really the way that you sort of normalize the idea of talking about sexual health and matters related to sex, really, really from day one. Um, so yeah absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And Asha uh you and you mentioned Asha and NCCC. Um on the Asha website we actually have a portal for healthcare providers and there are a lot of tools there to really help facilitate conversations to give some quick talking points to really you know get this kind of these sometimes difficult thorny topics uh to bring them up and really talk about them in a very efficient manner. So uh on the landing page for this podcast we will post a link to that as well. Let me. Be awesome. And I, I have
1: a quick question for you, Fred. Sure. Is, I feel like at some point Asha has done CMEs for physicians, which stands for Continuing Medical Education. And I think it'd be really interesting um, and really valuable if we would be able to do that for physicians when it comes to precisely what we're talking about having these discussions with patients, right? Because, of course, we can start to be idealistic and, and change medical school curriculums, which in of itself will take you know, take some time, but what do we do with all the physicians who are already out there practicing?
0: One of the CME that we've done is around HPV, and uh, it includes some, like, like patient, like patient counseling messages, you know, for for physicians to use to talk, you know, what do you do when your patient's diagnosed, and you're going to have some conversations that may not be that comfortable, you know, so we've actually done some of that as part of a broader program, but, you know, it might be good to do it as you're suggesting there, just to let it stand on its own, so, um, uh, duly noted, thank you for that.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for all the work that you guys
0: are doing. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, certainly you and the other directors really uh, empower and help us, like doing this podcast is great. And the one, one, one thing I, I would be remiss if I didn't touch on this, about partners of women who were undergoing treatment. So what about partners? What, what do they need to know if, if their partner is undergoing treatment for gynecologic cancer? How can they support the patient? So
1: to me, and with the experience that I've had, the social network of a patient is most definitely the most critical cog in the wheel. So this includes support in the form of family, friends, colleagues, coworkers, community groups, prayer groups, and more. Of course, the role of a significant other cannot be underestimated, just given the fact that we are discussing GYN malignancies. To that, I would also recommend open channels of communication since this is a lifelong journey that both partners are going to be um, taking together. So, Fred, just based on the fact of what we were just discussing about the difficult, you know, the challenging, controversial, however you want to frame it, that conversation piece of having discussions with patients about sex, I think the other thing that we need to focus on as a group, as a community, is a difficulty surrounding the conversation with vaccinations and specifically targeted to what we're talking about today is the HPV vaccination. So how can physicians talk about this with their patients um, so that they're most comfortable in dealing with whatever um, misinformation, whatever hesitancies that the patient and the community is feeling? So if we could maybe come up with, you know, a CME of just broaching difficult sexual topics so that physicians feel empowered and comfortable to have these discussions. And then what that ultimately will hopefully mean is better health metrics in the long term.
0: And uh, you you mentioned the HPV vaccine, and we know that one of the most important predictors of whether or not young people are actually getting this vaccine is, is if their clinician recommends it. You know, that really carries a lot of weight with parents. So you're exactly right. Giving tools and empowerment to clinicians to actually, you know, proactively and assertively recommend the vaccine and to talk about it with parents is is really huge in getting needles in arms, as, as as they say.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I will just I just want to end by saying that, you know, rightfully so, not just America but the entire world clamors for some sort of cure for cancer, and it would just be remiss on us to not take advantage, full advantage of the fact that we are able to essentially eradicate the cancer in our lifetime, and that cervical cancer, with the tools we have at hand, whether it's the pap smear or whether it's the HPV vaccination, to really be able to push those modalities so that we can start saving women um, from a cancer that should not be killing anyone.
0: So what about as women age? So if we're talking about treatment options in older women, uh, maybe side effects and sexual functioning in older I mean, does that change? D- d- does treatment really change with the age of the patient? Are there any different side effects? Say a woman in her 60s might expect a one in her 30s.
1: Uh, absolutely, and I think the best way to answer that is to liken um, GYN cancers, with say prostate cancer. So when I'm advising a patient, will be undergoing radiation for prostate cancer, one of the most common side effects is decreased libido. And so the reason that we need to really specify that for older men is that it's decreased libido, sexual function is such a multifactorial kind of process and age being one of them. So as women and men age, naturally libido decreases. Naturally, hormone levels fluctuate and change over a lifespan. So if you're talking about treating older women, then their baseline is already um, negatively affected, if I may yeah. say. So adding any sort of chemotherapy or radiation will only serve to accelerate um, that decline. So I guess the, the the kind of overarching theme there is just to be more mindful that older patients will experience this to a greater degree, perhaps.
0: Okay. Dr. Mamta Singhvi, thank you so much for your time today. We really covered a lot of ground, and uh, I, as, as things change and new, new technologies come online, uh, I, I hope you'll come back and chat with us again.
1: I would absolutely love to. Uh, thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to a celebration of September gynecologic month. Thank you so much.
0: And thanks to everyone who downloads and listens to this podcast, we'll have more to come throughout the month of September. Uh, so, so you know, check in with us often. We're online at ashasexualhealth.org, and of course, follow us on Twitter at infoasha, and be our friend on Facebook. You can also sign up on our website to receive our update emails, and we'll let you know what's happening in the world of sexual health as new resources develop, just like this podcast. So, until next time, this is Fred Wine for ASHA. So long, everybody.